Hello, I'm Leslie Betts, and welcome to the Opiongo Line. I'm joined by Mark Wormke, another member of our Opiongo Readers Theatre, and we're here today to bring you the second part of That Man from Rockingham, or as we like to call it, a show that tries to solve the exotic mystery of who exactly was John Samuel James Watson, the founder of Rockingham, that little historic village just down the road from Barry's Bay. You will remember that in early August, when we began to unpack the fog of local history by delving deep into the documentary evidence lately made available, we told you about the life of John S.J. Watson prior to his emigrating to Canada. He was born in Bangalore, India, on October 24, 1824, the second son of an artillery major who worked for the East India Company and who sadly died when John was not yet six years old. We also heard that the young lad returned to England and attended a Wiltshire boarding school before entering St. John's College, Cambridge, where he graduated with a BA in 1847 and an MA in 1851. We also discovered that John S.J. Watson became an ordained Anglican priest in 1848 and took up his religious duties at Holy Trinity Church in Amberley, Gloucestershire. And it was there in 1850, when he was not quite 26 years old, that he met and baptized Sarah Jane Milliner. Her parents had been nonconformists but wanted their 16-year-old daughter to be baptized a second time and this time in the Church of England at Holy Trinity Church, the very one where Reverend Watson had been assigned. But that's where our story, to use the vernacular of our sponsors, the Station Keepers, went off the rails. Reverend John Samuel James Watson then appears to have eloped with the 16-year-old Sarah Jane Milliner, traveling 400 kilometers north to Carlisle, and hurriedly marrying the girl in St. Cuthbert's Church in Botchergate, a township of Carlisle. The pair then show up on the very first anniversary of that March 31st wedding in the official 1851 British census. It had them still living in Botchergate, yet claiming that Reverend Watson was still the curate of Holy Trinity, 400 kilometers away. The trail then goes cold for some six years, at least according to the Cambridge University Alumni Office, who don't seem to know of the good reverend's whereabouts. According to them, the next time Reverend Watson pops up, it's 1857, and he's a curate in Hale Magna, Lincolnshire. And though Reverend Watson remains listed in numerous clerical directories in England for another 10 years, he completely disappears from official British clergydom by the mid-1870s. Of course, from Canadian census data, we know he emigrated here in 1858 and by the end of 1860 was happily building Rockingham and making a reputation for himself as a land developer, merchant, postmaster, local politician and county warden. He was also living with his second wife, Mary Martin, the mother of his eight Rockingham children. We also discovered, incredibly, that his first wife was alive and kicking back in England and went to her grave in 1902, under the impression that she was, in fact, still married to John Samuel James Watson, though she probably had given up hope 
after waiting 44 years for her husband to ever come home to her. So this week, we hope to solve many more of the mysteries surrounding that man from Rockingham. If not, answer more of your questions, given another treasure trove of documentary evidence that our researchers have just uncovered in the past six weeks. But let me tell you, as we seem to get closer to the documentary truth about that man from Rockingham, the more curious he becomes. We no longer believe, nor did we find any evidence to give credence to, the long-held myth that our man from Rockingham was a royal peer, a young earl or marquis, who had fallen head over heels in love with Mary Martin, a scullery maid at his parents' Rockingham Castle just north of London. But we did find plenty of reasons to believe that it may have been John Watson himself who discreetly spread that Rockingham Castle myth in order to throw inquiring minds off the trail of ever finding out more about his true self that he left behind in England. Still, it's best not to get ahead of ourselves. Rather, let us begin by shedding some new light on that old rascal, John S.J. Watson. Probably the most intriguing, if not revealing, tidbit of new evidence shows up in Mr. Watson's death certificate from 1913. Deaths in the county of Renfrew, in the division of Brudenell and Lindock. John Samuel James Watson, an Englishman, died on March 7, 1913. He was born October 20th, 1821, in Cheltenham, England. He was 91 years and five months old when he died in Brudenell, where he was a retired merchant. He was married. His father's name was John James Watson, who had been born in England. His mother's name had been left blank, though it states she too was born in England. This information was certified by Thomas Watson of Rockingham on March 8th, 1913. Everything sounds perfectly normal, except when you take a closer look and notice three significant errors, if not telling details. We know John Watson was born in Bangalore, India, on October 24, 1824, and his father's name was Thomas Samuel Watson, and his mother's first name was Mary. Getting credited on the death certificate for being three years older than he actually was at the time of his death may not be a significant issue, until you realize that Thomas, the son who certified the death registration, not only didn't know the correct name of his grandfather, Thomas Samuel, or the name of his grandmother, Mary. Apparently, the Watson children didn't celebrate birthdays enough to remember their own father's actual birthday. Perhaps Thomas, the son, just got confused given that he certified that death registration less than 24 hours after his father had died. But throughout his long life, John S.J. Watson himself had acknowledged countless times in official British and Canadian government documents that he had been born in Bangalore, India, and not Cheltenham, England. At first, we thought it just might be a minor transcription error, or perhaps Thomas just had gotten a bit scatterbrained filling out the government form in 1913. Then again, it dawned on us that Cheltenham was in Gloucestershire and less than 30 kilometers from Amberley, the place where Reverend John S.J. Watson took up his sacred duties in 1848 at Holy Trinity Church and where he first met that captivating 16-year-old girl, Sarah Jane Milliner. So we had an idea, some might call it a hunch, 
that Cheltenham was a place old John Watson knew well, and that he must have often spoken of it to his son Thomas over the years, so much so that Thomas may have thought of it as his father's actual childhood home, if not birthplace. Well, that hunch produced all sorts of new documentary evidence about John S.J. Watson's early life in England. You will remember that after John Watson's father died in India in 1830, the young lad returned to England to go to a boarding school in Wiltshire. We weren't certain about his mother or the rest of his family, whether or not they remained in India or returned with John to England after the funeral. There seemed to be no census data available for Mrs. Mary Watson at all. Well, as it turns out, John Watson's widowed mother, as well as his older brother Thomas, did in fact come back to England. And, as it turned out, so did two of John's younger siblings, who we had no idea existed until we pursued that Cheltenham lead. Here are two more baptismal certificates from their happier, earlier lives on the subcontinent. Mary Ann Elizabeth Watson was baptized into the Church of England on the 20th of December, 1826, after being born on the 22nd of November, 1826, in Madras, India, the daughter of Thomas Samuel Watson and his wife Mary. George Edward Watson was baptized into the Church of England on the 7th of November, 1828, after being born on the 28th of September, 1828, in Madras, India, the son of Thomas Samuel Watson and his wife Mary. The biggest surprise to emerge about Cheltenham, however, turned out to be Mrs. Mary Watson's second marriage. A marriage was solemnized in the parish of Cheltenham in the county of Gloucester in the year of 1835 between John Davis, bachelor of this parish, and Mary Watson, widow of this parish, who were married in this church by license with consent on the 13th day of August by James Davis, officer and minister. The marriage was solemnized in the presence of Mary Watson, and others. So, in 1835, Mrs. Mary Watson became Mrs. Mary Davies, which explains why we could never find her census data or any other documents for Mrs. Mary Watson after 1835. Still, Cheltenham produced one more shocking revelation. We were curious as to why we couldn't seem to find anything on John's older brother, Thomas. We are now pretty certain we know why. Burials in the parish of Cheltenham at Trinity Church in the county of Gloucester in the year 1837. Thomas Watson, aged 15 years of Cheltenham, was buried here on March 13th. With the new Cheltenham location data, it wasn't hard to follow up on the combined Watson-Davies family, including the two younger Watson children. Essentially, Mary Ann remained single and lived with her mother and stepfather until all three passed away. Meanwhile, George struck out in hot pursuit of his father and stepfather's career. It turns out that both John Davies and his stepson George Watson both lived and retired in Cheltenham for most of their lives. And both George and his stepfather became lieutenant colonels in the Royal Bengal Army. And as a result, both amassed considerable fortunes. Indeed, while his older brother John was off at his Wiltshire boarding school in preparation for later becoming an Anglican priest, George was sent to a seminary of a different kind, or what was called at the time the East India Military Seminary in Addiscombe, Surrey. There, he graduated in 1846 and was accepted into the Royal Military College in Addiscombe as well. 
And from there, he went on to a very successful career with the Royal Bengal Engineers. How successful, you might ask? Well, when George passed away in 1879, his probated will valued his estate at nearly $1 million in equivalent Canadian currency today. Not bad for a lieutenant colonel, you might think. But when his stepfather also died, a retired lieutenant colonel, 10 years earlier in 1869, he left his wife, Mary Watson Davies, according to his probated will, an estate well over $4 million in equivalent Canadian currency today. How much time either of them ended up having to serve in India, we still haven't determined. But suffice it to say that by the time Reverend John S.J. Watson left England for good in late 1858, his mother, younger brother, sister, and stepfather were all very much settled and, one can assume, living very comfortable lives in Cheltenham, Gloucestershire, England. Now, what Sarah Jane Watson, John's first wife, knew of her husband's Cheltenham family is anybody's guess. After the couple eloped to Carlisle, it's also anybody's guess as to how she might have gotten on with the Watson-Davies clan. And finally, it's anybody's guess what they might have thought of Mrs. Sarah Jane Watson once Reverend Watson decided to fly the coop and abandon her completely. Still, it turns out, Sarah Jane Watson, knee milliner, had quite the impressive career all on her own, considering her station in life, the time she lived in, and the shape her husband left her in. Though she too disappeared for more than a few years, there is no certain trace of her in the 1861 British census. Still, it's intriguing to follow Sarah Jane Watson's whereabouts in the ensuing British census data until her death in 1902. In the 1871 British Census, Sarah J. Watson, married, 38 years old, works as an assistant to the headmaster and drawing teacher at the Jeru School, where she resides in the civil parish of St. Pancras in the County of London. In the 1881 British Census, Sarah J. Watson, married, aged 48, works as an artist and resides at 4 South Bank Terrace, Kingston-on-Thames, in the County of Surrey. In the 1891 British Census, Sarah J. Watson, widowed, aged 53, works as an artist and sculptor and is head of her own household in Barthamley, Cheshire. Living with her is a 22-year-old niece, Sarah E. Whitley, a school governess, and a 22-year-old servant, Selma Cook. In the 1901 British Census, Sarah J. Watson, widowed, aged 66, retired, living in St. Luke's Parish, Islington, London. She is living on her own means with her sister, Hannah Whitley. The census also notes, albeit with some pride and clarity, that she was born in Amberley, Gloucestershire. So by 1891, more than 30 years after being abandoned by John Watson in 1858, Sarah finally admitted, though without any real proof, that her husband, John Samuel James Watson, must have mysteriously died somewhere off the grid. But those 10-year check-ins by the British Census Bureau also suggest that Sarah Jane Watson used her adversities to make an interesting and very creative life for herself. Turns out, she was an artist with enough talent and ambition to support herself for probably 40 years or more. It's also intriguing to know that one of John S.J. Watson's most precious family heirlooms that had been handed down through the 20th, if not 21st century, involves a series of watercolor prints based on scenes from his early childhood in India. 
The assumption has been that he painted them himself, but one wonders if that sixteen-year-old budding artist that the young Reverend Watson first met and baptized in Amberley did not teach that fickle young priest how to paint those watercolors, or perhaps she painted them herself based on his retelling of childhood memories for him as some loving gift for their fifth wedding anniversary. We also discovered one more fascinating detail about Sarah Jane Watson. It turns out her older sister Hannah, whom she remained close to all her life, had been working in where else? Bottergate, Carlisle, at the very same time when Sarah and John Watson eloped to that city. Indeed, it makes perfect sense that when the young couple left Amberley, they headed north to Carlisle, for Hannah Milliner was already there to help them. Indeed, Carlisle, and in particular that district of Carlisle known as Bottergate, plays an oversized role in the Watson story. It is where Reverend John Watson and his young bride settled after their marriage in 1850. It is where Sarah's sister Hannah was living, and as it turns out, it is where Watson's second wife Mary Martin had deep roots as well. On June 12th, 1831, Thomas Martin from the parish of St. Cuthbert in the county of Cumberland and Mary Humble from the parish of Dalston in the county of Cumberland were married before these witnesses, William Sowerby and Jane Sowerby. In one of the great ironies of this story, Bottergate, and more particularly the parish of St. Cuthbert's, was not only where Mary Martin's parents were married in 1831. It was also where Reverend John Watson married his first wife, Sarah Jane Milliner, less than 20 years later in 1850. Still, what of Reverend Watson and his bride during those first 5 or 6 years of marriage in the early 1850s? The truth is, and despite what the Cambridge University Alumni Office failed to discover, Reverend John S.J. Watson and his blushing bride were there in Carlisle, hiding in plain sight all along. Sometime after that 1851 British census taken on March 31, 1851, the Reverend John S.J. Watson managed to get on quite well. He became the curate in the parish of Stanwicks, across the River Eden from Bottergate. and there built an enviable reputation so reputable that there are countless references to his untiring religious duties baptisms weddings funerals that are noted in many of the local newspapers of the time including the carlisle journal and the carlisle patriot take for instance this one as the young couple is fated by the parish of stanwicks church elders once they learned that mr and mrs watson had decided to leave carlisle after living there for nearly 6 years In the December 19th edition of the Carlisle Journal there appears the following story testimonial to a clergyman a meeting was held in the Stanix reading room on the 17th instant for the purpose of presenting Reverend J S J Watson MA who has resigned the curacy of Stanix an appropriate testimonial of esteem several ladies and gentlemen were present on the motion of the Reverend J F Simpson seconded by Mr Crowder Mr Isaac Scaife BA was called to the chair Mr Dickinson said that as it soon became generally known that Mr Watson had resigned the curacy of Stanix several of the congregation expressed a wish that he should not be permitted to leave without some offering of their esteem and gratitude for faithful and diligent discharge of his ministerial office accordingly he and the chairman gladly undertook to raise subscriptions with that view and it was a twofold pleasure to them first from their personal regard for Mr Watson and secondly from the willingness with which each contributed their portion 
He had, therefore, much pleasure in presenting him, in the name of the subscribers, with a silver tea set service before him, and he was persuaded that he was expressing the thoughts and feelings of the subscribers when he affirmed that they, one and all, sincerely hoped that God would endow him with long life and health to use that service. That it would serve to remind him of those who were duly sensible of his many good and Christian qualities, and that it would induce him to employ the same efforts in his next calling as he had exercised here. The reverend gentleman responded in feeling terms and returned his best thanks for all the kindness he and his wife had received from the parishioners. A vote of thanks was then passed to the chairman for the able manner in which he supported the chair, and the meeting dissolved. The tea service was from the establishment of Mr. Wheatley, silversmith of this city. Yesterday, an address was presented to Mr. Watson. The address dwelt upon the advantages and present prosperity of the institution and spoke of Mr. Watson as its chief architect. Not too shabby an exit from Stanwix, especially when one considered the condition of the couple's rather problematic arrival a stone's throw away six years earlier in Botchergate. We also discovered another intriguing document during Reverend Watson's six-year sojourn in Carlisle. It was taken from a rather exoteric-sounding, dusty old Journal of the Society of the Arts, a curious publication produced by the Royal Society for the Encouragement of the Arts, Manufacture, and Commerce. In the September 5, 1856 issue of the Journal of the Society of the Arts, the following report was published under the headline, Proceedings of Institutions. Carlisle, the annual general meeting of the members of the Church of England Religious and General Literary Association was held in the committee room at the Athenaeum on Monday evening, the 18th, at 8 o'clock. Among those present were Reverend J.S.J. J. Watson, Stanix. Now, being involved with such an enterprising and progressive group as the Royal Society for the Encouragement of the Arts, Manufacture, and Commerce would certainly stand Reverend Watson in good stead, especially when it came to engaging new ideas that were motivating artisans, craftsmen, tradesmen, and businessmen, not just in Carlisle, but all over England at the time. And certainly at the Society's many local meetings in Carlisle, it would have afforded Reverend Watson the chance to meet many of those enterprising young artisans, craftsmen, tradesmen, and businessmen that he would align himself with when he set off for Rockingham a few years later. Perhaps he even met a weaver or two, perhaps even a weaver's daughter, in the form of Mary Martin. Still, by the end of 1856, Reverend John S.J. Watson was executing another escape for whatever reason, and so left Carlisle, presumably with his wife, Sarah Jane Watson, and headed down to Hale Magna for a new job in Lincolnshire. Burials in the parish of Hale Magna in the county of Lincoln in the year 1857. Anne Ward, age 68 of Great Hale, was buried February 20th. The curate performing the ceremony was Reverend John S.J. Watson. After barely a two-month tryout, things were moving along swimmingly in Hale Magna and right on course for Reverend Watson. On page 3 of the 16th of March, 1857 edition of The Morning Post of Greater London, it was noted under the heading Ecclesiastical Intelligence that among the following preferments and appointments that have been made recently by the Church of England hierarchy, the Reverend J.S.J. J. Watson has been posted to the curacy of Hale Magna, Lincolnshire. All seems to be right again with the Watson world, 
But less than 10 months after he took that job at Hale Magna, Reverend Watson pops up surprisingly nearly 150 kilometers away in a new job in West Yorkshire. On page 8 of the October 3rd, 1857 edition of the Huddersfield Chronicle and West Yorkshire Advertiser, it was noted that the claims of the Church Pastoral Aid Society were advocated in a sermon in the Episcopal Chapel at Thurstonland on Sunday afternoon last by Reverend J.S.J. Watson, M.A., incumbent of Shepley. Not too surprisingly, his job at Shepley involved running a parish school, as he had done at Stanwix, and probably at Hale Magna as well. Indeed, in what amounts to the last documentary reference to Reverend John S.J. Watson's clerical career in England, we stumbled upon a final footnote to his life in Shepley, and we literally mean a footnote. On page 189 in a book entitled Bishop Bickerseth's Visitation Returns for the Archdeaconry by Edward Royal, the survey completed by the Shepley curate, Reverend J.S.J. Watson, was duly noted and commented upon, but there is a footnote attached to the first mention of Reverend Watson's name. It reads, John Samuel James Watson, born 1824 at Bangalore in India, son of a captain in the army, graduate of Cambridge, B.A. 1847, M.A. 1851, became a deacon in 1847, a priest in 1848, resigned his curacy at Shepley, West Yorkshire, on the 19th of August, 1858. In 1858, Archbishop Bickersteth, the man responsible for West Yorkshire, sent out a survey to all of his West Yorkshire curates to find out exactly what was going on in their parochial school programs. Our man from Rockingham dutifully filled out the Archbishop's survey, but along with returning it fully completed, Reverend John S.J. Watson also mailed in his letter of resignation. So, despite the glowing story posted in the Carlisle Journal at the end of 1856, by the late summer of 1858, or some 20 months later, John S.J. Watson had left three reputable church jobs altogether, Stanwick's, Hale Magna, and Shepley. Something indeed must have been going on that drove that man from Rockingham to abandon such promising opportunities. And not only that, whatever was going on, it literally put an end to his clerical career in England, and anywhere else for that matter, as of August 19, 1858. It would appear from other sources that on that particular day, August 19, 1858, John Watson removed his clerical collar, headed for Liverpool, and took the first steamship for Canada, and more importantly, without Sarah Jane Watson. Rather, he held the hand of Mary Martin, who would bring along not only many of her immediate family, including her own parents, but Martin, within two years, brought out to Canada as many of her friends and acquaintances as she could muster. To say little of the many friends and acquaintances that Watson had met through the Royal Society for the Encouragement of the Arts, Manufacture, and Commerce. By his own and Mary Martin's documentary admission, as stated in their 1901 and 1911 Canadian census, the pair arrived in Canada in 1858, presumably sometime between August 19th and the end of that year. Given that a steamship passage could take up to two or three weeks on average to cross the Atlantic from Liverpool, it's safe to assume John S.J. Watson and Mary Martin left England sometime in the early autumn of 1858. 
That, however, is not the end of our story. When our researchers picked up his trail in Canada, there were any number of curious new documents that also popped up, some of which did not get released publicly until recently. For instance, there is no known marriage license for John Watson's second marriage to Mary Martin. Knowing what we know now about his first wife's belief, at least until 1891, that she was still married to John S.J. Watson, it's unlikely that he would have attempted a second marriage in England. But then again, no marriage license or registration has been found to date in Canada for the pair either. But like those misleading details that his son Thomas wrote down on his father's death certificate in 1913, there seemed to be another curious discrepancy between the Watson family's 1861 and 1871 Canadian census. The former saying their oldest daughter was Mary, while the latter said Annie claimed that distinction. Curiously, that discrepancy doesn't get sorted out until long after both girls end their long and fruitful lives. Annie's death certificate indicates she was born in Ottawa on October 15, 1859. And though there is no death certificate publicly available for Mary, her tombstone says she was born in 1859, and her Renfrew County marriage registration says that she was also born in Ottawa and was 26 years old on her wedding day, February 25, 1885. That makes her actual birth date necessarily prior to February 25, 1859. Perhaps they were twins? Our research indicates not likely. Unless by twins you mean Irish twins, meaning two siblings with the same birth year where one is born at the beginning of a year and one at the other end of that same year. That would seem to be the case with the Watson girls. Nor should it come as any surprise that Mary and Annie Watson were Irish twins, given, as it turns out, that their grandmother, John Watson's mother Mary, was Irish herself. She had been born in 1798 in Dungannon, County Tyrone, Ireland, the daughter of a local Irish physician. So it would appear that if we take at face value Annie's death certificate that states she was born in Ottawa on October 15, 1859, then we can logically assume that Mary was born by January 1859, making everything consistent with her tombstone and her marriage registration. Which introduces another bit of consecutive reasoning, most probably true. If Mary Watson, the daughter of John S.J. Watson and Mary Martin, if in fact was born in January 1859, then John Watson and Mary Martin did not meet for the first time in Canada, nor did they even meet on the ship crossing over to Canada from England. Rather, they most certainly had to have known each other intimately by the spring of 1858, when Mary Martin became pregnant with their oldest daughter, Mary. So, imagine, if you will, Reverend John S.J. Watson and Mary Martin's lives that summer of 1858. It's little wonder he decided to resign his job on August 19th and leave the country with his very pregnant partner in tow. As to how and where Mary Martin and John S.J. Watson first met and fell in love, it's not that impossible to figure out. The whole Martin clan had grown up in and around Bottergate, Carlisle, and indeed Mary's parents had been married in St. Cuthbert's, the very same parish that John Watson and his first wife were married in when they first arrived in Carlisle. Simply put, 
Somewhere between 1851 and the spring of 1858, Mary Martin and Reverend John S.J. Watson met, and one thing led to another, and before either one of them knew what was happening, they were with child and on a ship to Canada late in the autumn of 1858. We also know they remained in Ottawa for nearly two years, not moving to Rockingham until the autumn of 1860. Again, documentary proof can be found in the local newspapers. On page 3 of the 22nd of September, 1860 edition of the Ottawa Daily Citizen, there is a public notice that reads, It is hereby given, the default having been made in payment of the monies secured by a mortgage deed made by Daniel MacLeod of the township of Nepean, Yeoman, and Jane MacLeod, his wife, to Samuel John James Watson of the city of Ottawa, Gentleman, of that certain parcel or tract of land and premises situated, lying and being in the township of Nepean, in the county of Carleton and the province of Canada, being composed of lot numbers 24 in the fifth concession of the said township of Nepean, Rideau Front, containing by admeasurement 60 acres. The said land and premises will be sold by public auction under a power of sale contained in the said mortgage deed at the law office of Mr. Powell and Duck in the city of Ottawa on Monday the 8th of October next at the hour of 12 o'clock noon unless in the meantime such monies shall be paid or the said lands and premises otherwise disposed of. Terms will be made known at the time of sale. William Duck, solicitor for the said John Samuel James Watson, Ottawa, September 18th, 1860. Thus, by the autumn of 1860, John Samuel James Watson was a gentleman living in Ottawa. Though he might just as easily have been considered a hard-nosed financier. For whatever name you may wish to call him, he appears to be self-financed and no longer living in the life of a financially strapped Anglican priest. Where he got his English gentleman's nest egg still remains somewhat unclear. Perhaps his mother interceded with his stepfather and loaned or offered a few hundred pounds. Perhaps he came into an inheritance. What can be assumed is that he did not arrive with 10,000 pounds sterling fresh from the overflowing coffers of Rockingham Castle. Indeed, most likely he arrived in Ottawa with perhaps a few hundred pounds sterling. Why? Probably because he couldn't afford to buy one of the choice bits of land development then being put up for sale, and that would seem to have John Watson's remote but progressive village idea written all over it. Here is a local newspaper ad that was running all while John Watson was hard-pressed to salvage whatever he could get back by foreclosing on the McLeods, who were only trying to make a go of it on Watson's Nepean property. Balaclava Mills for Sale this sale is a rare chance for capitalists. The property situated on Constant Creek in the township of Grattan, County Renfrew, within two miles of the Opiongo Road and 16 miles from the town of Renfrew. A village has been laid out and a few isolated lots sold. There is a good sawmill in operation on the premises and the country around abounds in timber. A large portion of the materials required for the erection of a grist mill are now on the spot. There are 500 acres of land attached, 70 acres of which are under cultivation. For further particulars, apply to the subscriber on the premises, Duncan Ferguson, Grattan, May 18, 1860. That particular ad was standard fare in Ottawa's major newspaper during most of 1860 and well into 1861. Perhaps Balaclava was not up to snuff for Watson, 
But it is equally possible that the cost of 500 acres, including surveyed village lots and two mills, was too rich for that man from Rockingham. Instead, Watson chose to buy 200 acres about 50 kilometers further west of Balaclava, out there in the seeming wilderness of the newly surveyed townships of Brudenell, Lindock, and Raglan, and where land was much cheaper. Watson also may have known that his Rockingham site was not going to be remote for long. The smart money in Ottawa already knew that patch of wilderness had a good chance of becoming a sure-fire winner. Why? It was located on an essential winter tote road used by hundreds of teamsters supplying countless lumber shanties up the Madawaska, Opiongo, and York rivers. It was also the one major route that connected the little village of Brudenell, a major stopping place for the booming timber trade along the new Opiongo colonization road, with Denison's Bridge, later to be renamed Cumbermere, and which was then the terminus for the Peterson Road, which in turn was already connected to the Hastings Colonization Road. But plans were already afoot in 1858 to use that winter tote road that passed through Watson's, soon-to-be-purchased Rockingham site, to extend the Peterson Road from Cumbermere to Brudenell, and thereby connect the Hastings Colonization Road with the Opiongo Colonization Road. All to say, that winter tote road that ran right through Watson's Rockingham property was soon to become known as the Branch Road, a major transportation and communication artery for the timber trade in the upper Madawaska Valley, and a road that lasted well through the second half of the 19th century and most of the first half of the 20th century. Whatever John Watson did in those two years he lived as a gentleman in Ottawa, he certainly developed the instincts of a hard-nosed financier and opportunistic land developer. He kept his entrepreneurial nose to the ground and capitalistic ears open for the sound of what his brother George and stepfather John Davies probably would have concluded was tremendous opportunity. Indeed, it was during those two Ottawa years that the Reverend John S.J. Watson most certainly shed his old life of a clergyman with its attendant sense of moral leadership and took up a new life, that of a hard-nosed land developer, businessman, promoter, talent scout, hiring manager, and man about town. Ironically, he was known to occasionally revert back to his earlier self and become a sometime preacher once he built St. Leonard's Church atop a hill in downtown Rockingham. But one thing remains constant. John Samuel James Watson knew the power of the pulpit and so could easily convince anyone who would listen that he indeed had gladly left behind a comfortable life. He was once an English peer who had grown up in Rockingham Castle, but morally it was too comfortable of a life as the story he told goes, and that he could no longer tolerate it without the love and companionship of Mary Martin, the mother of his eight children. And so he left England for good with the love of his life. Before we go today, please indulge us in one bit of modest speculation amidst all of our documentary evidence that we've presented today and six weeks ago. Possibly it may explain why Reverend Watson could be so heartless and cruel, if not downright immoral and criminal, in abandoning Sarah Jane Watson back in England. 
Two things struck us along the way of our research as not inconsequential in explaining Watson's seeming Jekyll and Hyde decision to abandon his first wife. One, John Watson's father and older brother both died much too young. And secondly, we were never able to find any birth or even death records for any children born to Reverend Watson and his first wife, Sarah Jane Watson. Absolutely nothing turned up in the 1850s, and no later indication that any children had been born of the young married couple. So, it may not surprise some that perhaps John Watson, like at least one British royal, simply wanted an heir, a son to pass on all his accomplishments. King Henry VIII had the same obsession and had done even more horrid things in the name of getting a male heir. So, why not John Watson? And so Sarah Jane Watson, after eight years of trying, may have seemed unable to give John Watson that one essential thing he craved most. Granted, it's not enough reason for a man of the cloth, let alone any decent man, to break his religious morality, if not his legally sworn oath to, till death do us part. But it just might explain why John S.J. Watson so readily took up with Mary Martin probably back in Carlisle prior to his departure from there in 1856, and especially after he found out she was pregnant in that wild, horrible, wonderful summer of 1858. So he walked away from Sarah in Shepley that last time and headed for Liverpool with Mary Martin, already big with child. It was enough, perhaps, to finally make him, this seeming English peer, happy So ends our story today of that man from Rockingham, John Samuel James Watson. We don't doubt you still have questions about John S.J. Watson, and we can't say for certain that there won't be a part three of that man from Rockingham, but it's probably best for now to let John Watson, Sarah Jane Milliner, and Mary Martin rest in peace. Until then, I'm Leslie Betts, And for Mark Wormke and our producer, researcher, and writer, Barry Conway, we here at the Opiongo Line wish you a good day and God bless. (laughs) 